Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I am your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Carl Marlantis. He is the winner of the Washington State Book Award for his previous novel, Matterhorn. He was a Rhodes Scholar before serving as a Marine in Vietnam, where he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and ten Air Medals. His most recent novel, Deep River, is published by our friends at Atlantic Monthly Press, an imprint of Grove Atlantic. Carl, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Carl, this book, Deep River, is so unbelievably good. <laughs> the characters in the novel itself were a part of my life while I was reading it, so much so that I was waking up at night and in the mornings thinking about the characters and what they were going through. Um, when I started reading this book, I was thinking of Tolstoy. And then as I moved through it, I started thinking about Steinbeck and ultimately... I was thinking about you, Carl. <laughs> and this novel, <laughs> Deep River... good names to be associated with. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Great. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, this novel, Deep River, is a novel out of time. And what I mean by that is it is a 700-plus page novel that is set in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Carl, do you know before you began your novels, and I use the plural because I'm also thinking about Matterhorn, do you know going in that your canvas is going to be so enormous? Well, yeah, I do. I, I, I have a pretty good idea of um, <clears throat> what I want to accomplish. And, uh, uh, I mean, Matterhorn, the canvas geographically was big, but it was only over three months, which was a lot easier to handle. There's no doubt. This one goes over about 35 years. But um, what, what's, what, what determines the length for me is the character arcs. And what I wanted my characters to do, they just, no human can do in three months. And, you know, so it, it, would, it took my, as someone put it, the most exasperating heroine in modern literature, <laughs> I know, to, you know, finally, she makes some bad choices and she comes around and then finally in the end, she gets her act together. And, and, but that took her 30 some years. And so that's what, that's what determines the, the length of the, uh, the novel. Thank you so much, Carl. And looking a little bit more at this novel as a whole before we dive into specifics, uh, it was your family's history that inspired this novel. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah. I, um, I grew up in a little logging town in Oregon, so I know logging. And I fished with my grandfather on the Columbia River commercially for, for salmon. And um, my relatives were loggers. And I'm of Finnish heritage. My mother's first language was Finnish. And of course, my grandmother's, and but my name is Greek because my father's first language was Greek, and uh, and then my my grandfather's he's a Swedish-speaking Finn, but then my mother's biological father's Leif Erikson, a Norwegian. I mean, our our household had all these languages rattling around in it, and my brother who coined the term in our house of uh, cultural schizophrenia. <laughs> we just ended up speaking English. I mean, I can tell you the names of the cookies in all these languages. Mm -hmm. But so that's my heritage, logging town, uh, Finnish, Finnish heritage, and uh, always been interested in, in mythology. I mean, Matterhorn is very imbued with the Parseval myth, and this novel is imbued with the Kalevala, which is a, it's like the tame for the Irish, the Kalevala is for the English, uh, for the Finnish. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I've always been interested in, like, Norse gods and goddesses ever since I was a kid. 
And a lot of people say, oh, you learned that from your grandparents. No, they, they, were, they just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, they worked. They just worked all the time. I mean, it's, that generation uh, uh, didn't have time for even much reading. Uh, it, so uh, all of that sort of went together and, you know, informs the novel. I mean, the novel's not anywhere close to about my grandparents or anything, but but I kind of have my uncles in mind. I mean, they were loggers, and I remember them, and I and I have stories from all these people, uh, you know, stories about the early labor days, and I have stories about early logging, and, and uh, so, you know, that just all sort of mixes in there, and then every morning you go sit down and something comes out. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, the first section of your novel, Deep River, takes place in Finland, where one of your characters, I know, uh, becomes inspired by the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. How does the Communist Manifesto breathe life into this character, and how did it influence the trajectory of her narrative? Well, I know is an idealist, and, uh, and she's also a very intelligent young woman who grew up uh, struggling with, with poverty, class structure. The Finland at the time, uh, the novel set was under the heel of... Uh, uh, Russian Empire uh, belonged to Russia, and uh, she witnesses, uh, you know, great economic privation, and she sees it, and she has seized upon because she can read and she's smart. Uh, one of her teachers slips her the Communist Manifesto, and she takes that and begins to read socialist literature. And she was very typical of the Finns and the Finnish immigrants. One of the things that is different about the Finns is that they, they were just as poverty stricken as the Italians and you know the Greeks and everybody else that came here but you couldn't get confirmed into the uh, Finnish church unless you could read and talk about a motivator to read I mean you go to hell if you, if you don't learn to read so all those Finns could read and that's a big difference and so they of course were able to read a lot of literature and a lot of newspapers and so they were much more conscious group of immigrants. Uh, and Aino is, is a typical dreamer. She's, she buys the whole communist idea. And you watch her sort of struggling as she grows and as history unfolds. Uh, you know, she sees the, the Russian Revolution uh, turn into a civil war. She sees Finnish independence turn into a civil war. Uh, she sees, you know, Stalin uh, and uh, one of the one of the things I remember my grandmother doing, and uh, uh, when I used to go to Astoria, which is about 15 miles from my little town, she had the Daily Worker on her kitchen table. I thought it was the local Astoria paper. I didn't have clue it was the you know National Communist paper because she was a communist. My grandmother, and she inspires I know a little bit, but my own grandmother uh, had friends in the late 30s or the mid 30s. About a hundred Finns in Astoria. Uh, sold everything, took their kids, and moved to Russia because they firmly believed it was the workers' paradise. Well, they disappeared. I mean, it was awful. They were sent to the gulags. Their families were broken up. No one's heard from them again. Historians are just now starting to try to figure out what happened to that group of Finns. It wasn't just from Astoria. From all over America, they went back to Russia. I, so I kind of watched my grandmother live through that, and her idealism start to fade. And... Uh, this one, one moment I remember, my, 
she was talking to my mother, and they're talking in Finn, and I don't understand Finn. I, like I said, I can name the cookies. But she slaps her hand down on the Daily Worker, and she says, that's the last straw. She liked to use English expressions. Uh, she didn't like to speak English, but she, she picked up last straw and all those kinds of, of things. And um, I asked my mother, oh, several years later when I was older, what was that all about with the last straw? And Grandma, she said, oh, well, that's when she quit taking the Daily Worker because that's when the Russians invaded Hungary. Mm. And, and so watching my grandmother move from this idealism, I mean, if you read what the Communist Manifesto and, and Marx was trying to accomplish, they were, they were really trying to do good in the world, you know? I mean, we have this view of communists, you know? It's sort of tempered by the whole McCarthy era and the Cold War and all that. The, those people aren't really communists. They're, they're totalitarian dictators. That's a very big difference. So my, my view of, of my grandmother struggling with idealism versus practicality, I brought that to Aino in my character. And uh, she struggles with idealism, and she gets herself in trouble lots of times because her ideals kind of overwhelm her compassion, you know, uh, not unusual. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, I want to point to a quote on page 7. And much of this novel about the late 19th and 20th century rings true today in the 21st century. The quote I would like to point to is, Living in fear is not living. Uh, two questions about this quote. One, how does I know internalize this message and carry it forward into the United States? And two, if I know were a character in a story set in the United States of America in the 21st century, how might she respond to this quote? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I have to think about that a bit. Well, first of all, uh, that was her mo mother, uh, or it was her father. And uh, uh, she, her father ends up going to prison and disappearing because of uh, activities for Finnish independence. And when she comes to the United States, she gets involved in organizing, and she gets involved in the logging camps. And organizing for labor, especially for the IWW, which was the industrial workers of the world, it was dangerous. Uh, they had what they called the red card, which basically you pay your union dues to help the IWW organize, and they have to pay their organizers. And... Uh, um, if you were caught with that card, you were fired. Not only were you fired, you were blacklisted, which meant you couldn't get another job. That meant your family would go without food. I mean, it was a serious issue to just join a union like that. And um, later, as, as, as the IWW's reputation began to be, in my opinion, tarnished because of uh, their stance against the First World War, um, which was a bad tactical move on their part. Uh, the government just crushed them and threw these people in jail. One night they arrested over 250 IWW leaders. Uh, they had passed a law called the Espionage Act of 1917. And one of the uh, clauses of that act was that if you were caught thinking about overthrowing the U.S. government, you, you could go to jail, and that's what they used. It's still on the books today. And uh, so you, you move forward to the 21st century, we've made progress. You're certainly not going to go to jail for being a union member, and, and uh, I think it's illegal to fire you if you're a loser. So, I mean, progress was made, but progress was made because of those people back in the early 20th century taking huge risks and suffering for it. 
and uh, it's worth remembering. You know, I mean, it's just just to, just to honor them. Um, but today, we you know, the, the IWW sold uh, this espionage. I mean, the, the government sold this espionage act to crush the IWW based on a fear of Bolsheviks. They're going to come, you know, they're going to come into the country and they're going to overthrow the government and they're going to turn you all into slaves. I mean, it was amazing. And Americans, for some reason, maybe all humans, but I know for sure this country is very prone to being manipulated by fear. I mean, today we have, you know, the Mexicans coming across the border and the terrorists and the Patriot Act, which is an enormous impingement on personal freedom, uh, in my opinion. Uh, is sold on the fear uh, that, you know, the, the Taliban's going to be, you know, storming the beaches of Santa Monica. I mean, and, and somehow we as a nation who, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, I kind of find it ironic that we're so easily stampeded to giving up our rights and our freedoms because we're afraid of some other that's actually kind of manufactured. It was manufactured back then. It's been manufactured today. I mean, it's, you know... If you look at the actual stats of who's coming across the border, yeah, maybe there were one or two gang members. Yes, certainly, you know, but the vast majority were just people who want to have a better life. I mean, it's just what, ever since, I mean, what's interesting is that this nation is truly a nation of immigrants because the first immigrants, the American Indians, why did they come here? They wanted a better life, better hunting. They crossed the Bering Strait so that they could find better. So we've always been motivated by just trying to find a better life. It's still going on. And, and, and then we're also stampeded by the next people who are coming. It's like, well, we should be afraid of them. I mean, I find it fascinating, all the parallels between that time and this time in, in my novel. You know, class structures, inability to make an, uh, earn a living wage. Um, in, enormous income disparity and unfairness. Well, it's all with us still today. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, in this novel, I know encounters a lot of trouble because she is a woman. Can you talk a little bit about what it meant to be a woman espousing the beliefs that she was at this time? Well, I think that it, it, her being a woman uh, was, first of all, she was very limited in, a, in that culture because it was an enormously physical culture. She simply couldn't have logged. She was five foot four and didn't have the strength. I mean, that was that was something that was just it wasn't there was no no discrimination other than biological. It was so most women ended up uh, you know doing traditional women's roles. 
quite frankly, they were in a pretty good position because I think that was like the, the the ratio of men to women was enormously in excess on the male side, and so that 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 helped. And uh, but when when she wanted to get involved in early uh, uh, labor work, some of the early labor unions didn't accept women. Uh, the IWW accepted women, they accepted African Americans. They were a much more inclusive outfit. And some of the famous labor figures, uh, Helen Gurley Flynn, uh, uh, who's the other one, Mother Jones. I mean, so, women were very important in the labor movement. And uh, <clears throat> as a sort of a secondary thing, what, what was very important, and my character, Aino, uses her f- women's networks to help organize because. The young men, the loggers in general, certainly at the beginning of the century, were single, 17 to 25 years old. If they didn't like what was going on, if the, if the conditions were bad, they just left. But as soon as women started arriving and they started forming families, suddenly getting a living wage and, and uh, staying there and fighting for a living wage... Was, was much increased by the fact that women arrived. And, and now it's like, I just can't leave. I got kids, you know? And so, so I, well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to fight right here to try and get a living wage. So in, in many ways, it, it, it's interesting how the, the, the women contributed, uh, not just by what they're actively organizing, but by actually changing the actual culture so that the men, the young men, begin to sort of think about it in a different way, like... Uh, instead of just packing up and going. Very hard to organize uh, for higher wages if, if your labor just moves. Carl, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, this book is over 700 pages long, but I read in Publishers Weekly that you cut 150,000 words from the manuscript. Uh, and my questions for you about this are twofold. Uh, one, why did you cut them? And two, can I please read them? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean... I cut them, quite frankly, because of this marriage between commerce and art that, that the book business is. I mean, you, you just have to uh, understand that if, if, if you just, just do it, you know, oh, I'm not going to cut anything because it's all precious. Well, I'd have, you know, a 300, well, my first, my first uh, draft was 350,000 words. And uh, Morgan Entrican, who's the president of Grove and also my, my uh, editor, I sent it in, and there was total silence. Okay, he's a businessman, right? 350,000 words comes across his desk, and there's silence. Two weeks went by, six weeks went by, 10 weeks without a word from Morgan. I finally got a six-word email. Great stuff, too much of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's dealing with these New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's great. I mean, he's a, he plays the masterful psychology game. It's like, well, Carl, um, I'll publish it word for word just the way you've written it course i'll lose money but you know and if you want to just sell two thousand copies you know over the next day that's fine i'll publish it well of course what he's just saying to me is that the practicalities of the market big books you know and i told him i said uh, morgan anna karenina is three hundred fifty-one thousand words and he just looked at me and he said i could never sell anna karenina today you know mm. <laughs> and what he didn't say is and you ate tolstoy but uh uh so it, primarily it was cut because uh, I had to make it zippier so that it would sell. I mean, and, and I don't mind. I mean, it, it's, that's just the nature of the beast. Uh, and I think that this, I mean, you know, you think about Shakespeare, for Christ's sake. He had to, he had to sell his plays. 
and uh, I and you know it didn't seem to hurt him anything. So I I don't I don't mind that this 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 uh, like I said difficult marriage exists, um, but it does take a lot of work. I mean when I to cut a, a three hundred fifty thousand word manuscript down to two hundred twenty, which is a little I think it's two hundred twenty one or something mm -hmm. like that now. Uh, whole characters get cut, uh, and then you have to cut their spouses, and then you have to cut their kids, and and then if and then you, you, it's amazing, like you know, you'll see on like page four hundred and twelve, there's a reference to one of the characters' kids who's been cut. Oh my God, you know, we got to, you know, so it, it's it's not trivial, and uh, luckily you have tools today that make it easier. For example, you take all the kids of a character and you do a search on them, and if there's still one or two hanging in the manuscript, you got to go in there and fix it and uh, hope that it's not something critical to the plot. Uh, so, it, and I just took a, I took a spreadsheet and I said I got to cut 150,000 words, and I just made myself a goal. I just took it chapter by chapter, and I said, okay, uh, 150 out of uh, uh, out of 350 is X percent. So I just did it mathematically, and I just sort of said, I, I know I want to make it faster here. I know it slows down here. So it wasn't completely math, but if I didn't make my goal, I had to go back at it again and, and see if I could, sh you know, shave it again. Um, Ann Patchett was talking to me. I just was at their house, and she said that uh, they're called, she calls them lice. I mean, you know, writers just need to make sure that they get rid of the lice because they sort of crawl around in there, and you go like, I don't need that. I really don't need that. And quite frankly, I think that the discipline of the marketplace is really good for helping a writer get rid of lice. I think it's just important. Um, so that sort of was the process of why I cut it. And uh, uh, I think it's a better novel. It's better, it's better to read. As far as could you read the stuff, I'd, I'll send you the first draft. I mean, it's all on, it's all on a, a Word program, and you, you'll be amazed. There's whole, like I said, whole different whole brothers that have been cut out. And uh, if you're interested, I don't mind. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. I'm very interested, and I only ask because I found this to be one of those novels that I did not want to end. And I, when it did end, I did not want to put it down. And um, in response um, to the gentleman at your publisher, I will say uh, Oprah could sell Anna Karenina, and I believe that we can too. Uh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I would like to thank Carl Marlantis for being generous with his time, and he was so generous with his time that we are able to divide this podcast into two parts, the second part of which will be published next Monday. Signed copies of Deep River can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space for three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been a Bookin'.